I'm Dick Moberg, and for more than 40 years, I've been developing technology to advance our understanding of the injured brain. I've had a chance to work with some of the leading minds in the field of neuromonitoring, including physicians, researchers, and entrepreneurs. I want to share their stories with you in the form of a weekly podcast so you can stay current on the latest developments in the field and the innovative people behind them. This is my neural network. Hi, I'm Dick Moberg. Our guest today is Scott Wilson, Chairman and Chief Scientist at Persist Development Corporation. Scott has degrees in physics and computer science from UCSD and UCLA. After working in industry for a few years, he founded Persist Development in 1987. And as many of our listeners know, that company grew to be the worldwide leader in EEG software, having been adopted by every major manufacturer of EEG equipment. So Scott, welcome to the podcast. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. Sure. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. And, um, you know, I wanted to start by saying that uh, both of us uh, share a love of two things, EEG and surfing. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you Can't know, yeah, right. you know, your love and, uh, of EEG really has, uh, has changed the whole field and the way clinicians uh, read EEG. And, you know, you grew up surfing on the West Coast and, and mostly at places that we'd only read about in Surfer Magazine and drool over. And, uh, you know, and, and I grew up on the East Coast, just north of Miami, and we'd have to wait like, um, you know, for, for weeks before we got a decent wave to, <laughs> to ride. So, you know, at the outset of this, uh, at, at, of this conversation, I feel a, a little bit uh, inferior, <laughs> but maybe we can correct that later on in the conversation. So, well, I mean, from, from my point of view, that just makes you like wildly more robust. I mean, anybody who can surf on the East Coast has, has my, uh, my yeah. my greatest admiration. Yeah. It's like skiing in New England with the exactly. ice. Exactly. Right? Yep. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. Hey. So. So again, welcome. And you know, I want to start back. Um, back at the beginning, and I remember those days. Like back in '81, we uh, commercialized a little two-channel EEG machine that really had probably one of the first uh, uh, computed EEG metrics on it: the spectral edge frequency. And then, and then I remember I, I pretty much sat back and watched you guys just take off, you know, and, and you really define that feel. So um, maybe you could take us back to your beginning and, um, you know, tell us what it was like and how it happened. Well, I would love to do that. My goodness, this is one of my absolute favorite stories to tell because it is just so wildly unlikely. Um, but I mean, you know, you're right. I, I remember your device. And um, I mean, that was sort of the beginning, um, you know, and all of this, I started getting into this when, you know, machines were just going from paper to digital and, uh, you know, Windows came out and it sort of changed everything. But, you know, the story for me actually starts probably back in the late 70s. And there's sort of um, three threads that's, that slowly came together. And, um, you know, those threads ended up meeting in 1985. And first thread is the story of this Dr. Westman, who's a mad scientist in the guise of a uh, ear, nose, throat doctor who's working out in New Jersey. And um, <clears throat> one day a police officer comes in with his son and uh, the son's complaining of dizziness and Westman goes, oh, well, okay, you know, there's there's this test I'd like to administer, which is an uh, electronized And, um, you know, it's an indicator of 
maybe some you know underlying functional reason why um, there's dizziness. But um, you know, before I can do that, I have to ask you whether or not he's under the influence of any of your um, you know prescription drugs because they can actually cause dizziness. And so the cop goes, "Oh, well, that's interesting. Can you tell me whether or not?" He's under the influence of drugs by looking at this ENG. And Westman goes, hmm, that's an interesting question. So lo and behold, Westman spends the next two years advertising in the local paper and um, bringing in people and dosing them on cocaine, tranquilizers, amphetamines, uh, hallucinogens, marijuana, alcohol. And, you know, he's got this Victorian you know, house that's converted for for his office and, you know, the the attic is where they, you know, they send people for the drug testing. You know, there's a fan going, you know, to blow the smoke out of the room. But at any rate, over the course of two years, he and his assistants developed a protocol where they could actually bring a patient in. They would set them down, put on electrodes, um, two on either side of the eyes and one at the bridge of the nose. And, you know, because the eyeball is a dipole, as it moves back and forth, it generates a magnetic field, which then, you know, puts a current and you actually see this effect on the ENG. And, you know, this is sort of a, a well-known phenomenon. In particular, the one that we all probably know about is um, bed spins. So, you know, you get wildly drunk, you come home, you lie down on the bed, and if you turn your head to the side, um, you get wildly dizzy. And if your eyes were open, what you would actually see is them slowly shift and then rapidly come back. And so there's this nystagmus. Um, as it turns out, Westman developed this protocol where basically you set the patient down and you have them look left and look right and do 60 seconds of recording. And then you lie them down, look left, look right. And, you know, over the course of those two years, he not only figured out that you could tell whether or not somebody was under the influence of a drug, but actually what drug they were under the influence of. And, um, you know, sort of amazingly, he ended up getting a process patent for this technology and, um, you know, thought, uh, thought maybe he should commercialize it. So at the same time, there are these two um, IP lawyers in in New York and um one of them is taking a transcontinental flight he's sitting next to a guy in first class and this guy's a Czechoslovakian scientist who has apparently developed a bone implant um with this material that has some really nice um you know the ability to to perfuse liquid like like bones do and um so the lawyer goes, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, you know, what's the index of refraction? And the scientist tells him, and then and the lawyer goes, hmm, that's interesting. Could I get your card? So this starts this sort of mythical quest for this material. You know, and this is back in the days when, you know, we didn't have cell phones and it wasn't easy to communicate with somebody across the country and, you know, whatever. And so he has this, you know, sort of sketchy directions for this guy's office. And he flies into Czechoslovakia, he grabs a cab, he's going to the hotel, and top cars pull up immediately behind him. <laughs> the taxi screeches to a halt, 
his taxi driver jumps out of the car and just runs. He doesn't speak the language, you know, he has a couple of notes and, um, I mean, he just simply gets put in jail. <laughs> He's like, well, okay. Oh Didn't go exactly how I was, I was hoping. And, um, you know, for no ostensible reason, he spends the night in, in jail and they let him out in the morning and, you know, his quest continues and, um, you know, slowly works his way to this guy's office and, um, you know, meets this guy. He's there, goes into the lab and, um, he says, yeah, sure. You want a sample? And, um, directs him to this gigantic um, bowl of pieces of this material and says, have at it. So the lawyer sticks his hand in, grabs a handful and um, and shoots back home. So as it turns out, this is the beginning of the, um, the soft contact lens market. So these, <laughs> these two, yes. I mean, so these two guys started this company called International Hydron, um, licensed it to Bausch and Loam and, you know, over the, over, overnight, you know, made hundreds of millions of dollars. And, um, you know, not surprisingly, they sort of felt like they had the Midas touch. And what they started doing was, you know, they had all this cash. So they started going around picking up sort of high tech businesses. And um, one of the ones that they ended up picking up was they ended up licensing uh, Westerman's technology. And, you know, the idea was to build a portable computer, you know, that could actually do this drug testing and stick it in a, you know, cop car. And, you know, it had some nice aspects to it in that, you know, it tested current impairments as opposed to whether or not somebody got high over the weekend, you know, looking at metabolites and things like that that you get from blood and urine. And, you know, it would be an immediate test. And so they're like, yeah, okay, we'll commercialize this. And they met this guy who said, yeah, okay, no problem. Uh, six months, $50,000, I'll have you a machine that can do this. And, um, and we'll start selling it. So that's going on. And the third thread is that during this time, I'm, you know, at UCSD getting my degree in physics. and. Um, you know, this is, I mean, you know, this is something that I just absolutely love. And I mean, I was, I was sort of sort of born a physicist in, in the sense that I just like to understand things. And, um, you know, to, to me, you know, things like, uh, you know, understanding how rainbow works makes it just that much more beautiful rather than, um, you know, diminishing the magic. So I'm, I'm doing my degree there and I'm starting to read a you know, some of the early letters between, you know, Einstein and Bohr and Schrodinger. And I mean, it's just fascinating. These guys are, you know, because of quantum mechanics starting, I mean, you know, they're all the papers that we know about and the work that they're doing, but behind the scenes, I mean, they're talking about philosophy and what it is that we can know. And, um, you know, what does this actually mean for, you know, our perception of the world and reality and, you know, how does this work into, you know, how we should even think about, um, you know, life in general. And um, my dad had, had always been sort of interested in Eastern philosophy. So, of course, you know, around that time, Fritjof Capra's book, The Tao of Physics, comes out and I read that and I'm, you know, immediately hooked. And, um, you know, around that time, I started meditating and joined this spiritual group. Um, 
which is sort of really neither here nor there for the story, other than it actually sort of controls my movements and what I'm doing at that time. So I get my my undergraduate. I'm set to go off to you know graduate school and get a PhD in physics, but um, you know I'm in this spiritual group now that then is sort of traveling around the country, giving meditation workshops. And, um, you know, this is sort of the, you know, one of the centers of my life now. And so um, we actually, as a group, um, you know, sort of the the center of this group moves up to um, Malibu and we're living up there. So I need to find a job um, around there. So ended up going to work for the Rockwell Science Center. And this is sort of the think tank for Rockwell. It's in Thousand Oaks. And um, I'm a, a mathematical modeler for the applied spectroscopy group. And so what that sort of meant was I spent a lot of time solving Maxwell's equations for waveguides with partially filled um, dielectrics. And I designed a, a radar observing part that went on the stealth bomber. And um, you know, so I'm basically using computers to solve, you know, sort of very hard problems. And, you know, it, it was an interesting time in that, um, you know, I had actually sort of rejected computers, um, you know, up until that point. All the guys that I knew that were doing computers, they were sort of, you know, taking apart the personal computers, putting them back together with more fans or, you know, whatever the heck it was they were doing. And it seemed like a complete waste of time. But, um you know, around that time, I started realizing there were going to be problems that we're going to be able to solve with these computers that you just could not solve otherwise. And so, um, you know, I was doing that work at Rockwell and it was good, interesting work, you know, but I always sort of felt like I didn't really want to work in um, defense um, if I didn't have to. And so, you know, they had this very nice program where they would pay for my schooling, um, you know, while I was working. So they, you know, put me through UCLA and, um, you know, my study there was um, expert systems. And, you know, this is this sort of brand new field and people were just starting to develop systems that could do, um, you know, diagnosis of disease and things like that. And it required you know, having a human expert that could actually describe what it is that they do. Um, and, you know, then we tried to, you know, develop rules, um, you know, to describe those things. So, you know, it was fantastic of Rockwell to do that. They ended up, um, you know, basically paying me to to leave them, um, you know, it turned <laughs> out. So, again, at the same time, you know, I'm part of this group. We're doing the, the meditation things. And then the group moves up to Seattle. And um, this doesn't actually seem like a horrible thing. Um, you know, Microsoft is there just sort of starting up. And, you know, there are lots of other interesting things going on there. But the, the most interesting potential job for me is that, um, is that Boeing, you know, who is actually doing some of the very first AI work. And, um, you know, some of the best papers are coming out of there. And so I start, you know, hitting them up for a job. But, you know, that's sort of wildly slow. And um, in the meantime, I this is where now the three threads come together and I stumble onto this um, ad for a job and it's for this company called National Patent Analytical Systems that's been developed over about around the Westman technology. And um, at this point, rather than being $50,000 and six months into the project, I meet them when they're 
four years and four million dollars into the project and they've just had this wild failure on live television where they've got the you know the, the personal computer up there and they bring this you know grandma from the audience and um you know she comes up as you know lsd <laughs> and you know <laughs> you know they, they have the guy who's been in the corner who's now drinking a, a fifth of whiskey and they pull him up and he comes up normal and um <laughs> you know it's like well you know some something isn't working here and uh you know the guys that were doing this had you know used very sort of traditionals spectral analysis methods of FFT and like you said, you know, Ed Spectrum and things like that for looking at this. You know, this this signal from the ENG is, you know, I'm from the ENG is ostensibly, um, you know, EEG. And, uh, you know, you would think about it very much the same way. So, um, you know, here I am, you know, newly out of UCLA with my degree. And I said, well, you know, we have these two human experts that can do this. Why don't we actually, you know, try and build an expert system? And um, if it had only been Westerman, I would have been, um, you know, completely screwed. I mean, he was brilliant, but, um, you know, probably what we would now call autistic. And, um, you know, uh, but luckily for me, his um, assistant, Leanne Gilbert, uh, had a degree in gestalt psychology and, um, you know, was one of these humans, um, you know, we've got one on our staff right now, which is really helpful for me, Mark Scheuer. But I mean, there are, there are some humans who can actually sit back and tell you what it is that they're seeing and what they're doing. And so this is sort of the start of the technology that I'm ended up at Persist. But basically, you know, Leanne and I sat down and we talked about what it is that they saw. And, you know, they have a whole nomenclature for, you know, cocaine, you know, looked like, you know, cups and ripples. Opiates look like little stair steps. And, um, and you know, we came up with this method- methodology that basically described how humans see at the lowest level, you know, through the visual processing where we see, you know, things with symmetry and curvature, high curvature and high slopes and things like that. And then sort of walk up this conceptual framework of, um, you know, human perception up to the point where we're, you know, looking at very symbolic things like, um, you know, when they turn their head to the left, does the pattern, you know, shift to a, a sort of left focused sawtooth waveform versus the right? And um, and then ultimately sort of what drugs. So I was doing that for for two years. We were starting to get some some really nice results. And um, so this is 87. And then two things happened in 87. The first is there's this very well-known NBA basketball player who had a cocaine overdose and the effect of that was that we went from a sort of regulatory environment where Westerman was sort of free to advertise in the local paper and bring people up and drug them to his heart's content. Um, all of a sudden, that was not going to happen anymore. And all of a sudden, a single you know, drug test was going to require an inpatient hospital stay and, you know, overnight monitoring and, and probably a thousand dollars, you know, rather than the you know, 15 or 20 dollars he was paying so that was the first thing the second thing was the stock market crashed and um you know these these two lawyers who thought they had the modest touch had basically you know sort of wildly overextended themselves in 
lots and lots of little high tech, um, you know, companies. One was a Israeli company that had a technology where they could look at a drop of blood and tell you whether or not the person had, um, you know, cancer. And so they had moved, you know, this whole company from Israel over here. And then at that point found out that there was nothing to the technology. And um, so they, they were like, all of a sudden, holy crap, we have to shut everything down. And I'm like, okay, great. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I never had any particularly strong drive to, you know, start a company or, or do that. But, you know, it was sort of one of those change points in your life where you go, well, crap, you know, I want to have control over my own destiny. And, um, you know, things like this, you know, if I can pour myself into a project and then have it just like disappear, you know, underneath me for, you know, no reason of my own, um, maybe I want to change that. So, during the time at a uh, at national patent, I had met Frank Duffy, who is at Harvard, who is the um, I don't know if you remember him. He was the no, I knew him well. Yeah, the, the okay. beam, the beam uh, yes. system, sure. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we had met with him. That you know, there was some discussion about what exactly you know these patterns were that we were seeing, and um, you know, I think his feeling was that we were probably actually seeing some EEG traveling on the you know, eye signals um, as well. And so that may have been uh, part of what we were doing. But at any rate, you know, I'm out of a job now trying to figure out what to do. Um, I actually had control of the underlying technology for um, applications other than the drug testing. And so I called up Duffy and said, well, um, what do I do now? And Duffy goes, well, you know, the interesting problem are these um, epileptic spikes, you know, from... Um, uh, these seizure patients and I go oh okay well I guess that's what I'll do and um <laughs> so, so I mean you know this is the you know the great advantage of you know sort of wild naivete um you know I think I had you know one peer-reviewed paper at that point I didn't know anything about grants writing or I'd never even you know seen a grant application but um you know, I knew about these small business innovative research grants, you know, which are just, you know, absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, they're like the grants you would get if you were a professor at a university, except they have to have a commercial application at the endpoint. So, you know, I get my first little, you know, home computer and I'm, you know, starting to write code and um, I get a couple of records from Duffy with spikes and I start you know, creating a spike detector and at the same time writing these grants. And, um, you know, thank God there was a woman, um, you know, in the grant program who took pity on me. And, um, you know, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, but she sort of guided me through, you know, and it took, I think, three applications, um, you know, before I finally got one that, you know, paid out. But, uh, you know, the phase one was, I think, $50,000 and the phase two was $250,000. And, you know, for me, that was everything. I mean, this is back when, you know, $1,000 meant I didn't have to go go and work for AT&T or somebody like that. You know? yeah. So I was spending time, you know, I mean, you know what this is like. I mean, you're, you know, you're you're doing your thing and then you're having to make money on the side to pay for it and then figure out how to do that. And um I've been there. So, yep. That's another thing we have in common. That's how we started, right? Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, this is this is basically, you know, how I got the company going. I didn't have any outside funding. You know, I just had a couple of dollars in the bank. And, um, you know, we joked for a long time that, uh, you know, I was an overnight success after 10 years, you know, but that's really, um, you know, sort of sort of, uh, you know, how it started. Well, that's amazing. I mean, I think your your story started out as uh, something I was I was thinking was going to lead to a young Frankenstein story, you know, <laughs> with, <laughs> with going into that Victorian house and everything. But, uh, yes. No, that's a, that's amazing. Um, that the story that's 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 just unbelievable. You know, I think one of the things, um, you know, if we go back, um, you know, the you 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 remember as 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 well as I do the uh, just the switch from paper to digitally, e.g. That was um, a very interesting transition where a lot of people uh, didn't didn't want to adopt it because they thought digital technology wasn't as good, and, and they were probably right in the early days. But one of the things. Um, how did you find the adoption of, uh, of you know, the process DEG? And I remember when we showed our little two-channel EEG processor, which was mostly used to anesthesia, I remember a, neuro- a neurologist coming up to me and said, uh, you're committing fraud. And I'm going, you know, here I am, this little product I just <laughs> developed, you know, and going, oh, my God. I mean, I was almost in tears, you know, <laughs> and like, fraud. And, you know, he was talking about, you know, not being able to read the you know, back then it was like the eight or 16 channel EEG, you know, and that was real, but not sure he sort of saw where things were going. But how, how did you see the adoption of, of people looking or clinicians looking at, you know, the, um, the process EEG versus the uh, regular EEG? And now I know you could also see the regular EEG, but I, I know it was a little, uh, probably, probably a little bumpy right at the beginning there. Yeah. You know, you're right. And, um, you know, it's funny. It's something, we, you know, we don't think about anymore at all, but it was a gigantic deal then. I mean, and so I remember, you know, there were algorithms now to do anti-aliasing, you know, because, um, you know, again, the digitized DEG on the screen didn't look the same. And, um, you know, at one point we had efforts to try and actually make you know, very quick movements of the EEG look thinner because that's what the pen would do as it's moving quicker and spilling less ink. And, um, you know, it was it was one of those things that was a gigantic deal, but it was so clear that it wasn't going to be a big deal for very long. And, um, you know, luckily I was working with, with you know, a handful of guys, um, you know, like Richard Harner and, um, you know, Emerson and people who were sort of committed to, you know, doing computers and, you know, realizing that, you know, this was going to be the future. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I remember was that, you know, there were companies that were, that were so reticent, you know, to give up the analog, you know, they sort of owned that business and, um, you know, it, it cost them. Um, you know, some of them never recovered, you know, um, you know, Nihon Koden, which, you know, owned a you know, gigantic piece of that business was very slow to do it. And, um, you know, it cost them in that way as well. Yeah, it was a lot of the smaller companies like, uh, you know, Dennis Roscoe and his company and a couple others and that really pioneered the digital side of things. John Gottman got into it early on and um, right. it was yeah. the smaller companies. And uh, yeah, so. Yeah. And, you know, you just reminded me, I think that's where I first met you is uh, 
I was doing my um, graduate work with uh, Dick Harner in Philadelphia here, and I think he introduced me to you. I think we got together and when you were in Philly once. I think that's the first time I met you. <laughs> oh, I think that's so, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, it just brought back some memories of it. Now, you know, the other thing is, um, which I thought was interesting, that you 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 took the the path of of really developing a tool. And I think one of the things, if you if you look at Frank Duffy's work, I mean, he was really tying this to a disease, to like schizophrenia. I think was his first his papers, you know, on how he could diagnose that. And right. and some of the early work that we were doing in um, in processed EEG were to detect a level of anesthesia, you know, or something like that, or you know, ischemia if you clamp a carotid artery during surgery. But I I think what you did, which was smart, was really you developed a tool and you weren't really tying it to any disease state, which is really, um, it's really difficult, but I, I think that's where things are going to go. But you're, I mean, I, I'm really in admiration of, of, you know, what you guys have done and really changed this, uh, this field. So. Yeah. I wish, wish I could say that that was some great insight on my part. To do that. <laughs> you know, the, um, the, the thing that ended up being sort of the game changer for me is, you know, I, I started on the spike detector. We got that, um, you know, Nihon Kodan was fantastic and, you know, gave me really my first big break and deal with them. You know, if you had been watching the, the personal computer industry and how it played out, you know, with, you know, machines that basically locked customers in and then that changed you know, with the personal computer and then, um, you know, with operating systems that could, you know, sort of traverse those different systems. And, you know, so when I came into the EEG market, it's very much like that, you know, so if you bought a biologic system, you were locked into them and, you know, they sold you a, you know, $20,000 computer and software to sit on your desk if you were, you know, a neurologist who wanted to review, um, you know, from your office. And so the, I mean, I think, you know, the smartest decision I made was to make a was to make this universal reader, you know, and sold it for a tenth the cost. Yeah. And, um, you know, it sort of sort of got all of these file formats from the manufacturers. And, you know, this is back when there were, you know, 10 manufacturers rather than two. And but, you know, I got all these file formats before anybody sort of started thinking of us as a potential competitor, um, which was just, again, uh, you know, dumb luck. Yeah, that was really work. smart. <laughs> that was yeah. and, and a lot of a lot of us are wondering, how did you do that? Because <laughs> right. yeah. some of these companies won't talk to us, and, and you did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that uh, um, you know the that the, this whole uh, feel, the way it's changed, and the way um, the the little computers, uh, you know, the accessible computers have have changed the way we look at things. And I I remember um, I had the the fortune to meet. Um, uh, Dr. Mockley, who was one of the inventors of the ENIAC, the first uh, digital computer done at Penn in the, in 1947, and uh, actually dated his daughter for a while. And, and she, she thought I was boring because I only wanted to go back to her house and talk to her dad. You know? <laughs> so, so it didn't last very long. But, you know, he really had the vision, I think, back then um, that, um, you know, the value in, in all this is the software, and it's really the... Um, you know, the, uh, and not locking into computers. It was it was really interesting. He started a software company after that. Uh, I think Univac uh, uh, bought the ENIAC, and then, uh, but it but it failed because I think people weren't really ready for it yet. But 
you know, you, um, you, you did a great job there. And, uh, th thanks so much for sharing this uh, story with us. It's, uh, it's real fascinating. And I, I know a, a new dimension. <laughs> so, so that's really good. La the last thing, let's just, uh, where, where is persist heading? I mean, you guys come out with new stuff all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. So what's the, what's the future? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, for me, the end game is almost sort of where you started in the sense that, um, you know, my goal from the beginning has been to have basically an EEG or module plugin at every bedside monitor. And I mean, you, you, if I'm remembering this right, you know, you did the original Philips, you know, plugin EEG monitor and yep. You know, what What I really, really want is, you know, for us to be measuring EEG and, you know, how the, you know, brain health, you know, for every patient, you know, where there's a bedside monitor. I mean, it's not like the heart is any more important, um, you know, to be monitoring, but, you know, the brain is just so much, so wildly more complicated you know, and, you know, there are issues, you know, putting on electrodes, but then, you know, the other thing is, you know, we need, you know, for example, a seizure detector that's actually good enough that um you could actually just have an alarm at the bedside and, um you know, that wasn't going off all the time and irritating people, you know, you, you need a, you know, human level seizure detector, um you know, at the bedside. And, you know, this is sort of my holy grail is to get to that point. And so I've, you know, just for the last 30 years had my head down solving this singular problem, which is, you know, developing a, a seizure detector um, that has human level accuracy. And so, you know, we just did that um, within this last year. And we'll be coming out with a paper where we basically passed a uh, sort of modified Turing test um, compared to three human uh, readers. Um, you know, and so to some extent, you know, all the things in our software right now, you know, the artifact reduction to remove muscle and bad electrode detection and, you know, we have chewing detectors and eye blink detectors and, you know, we use ICA to remove eye blinks and all of these things. Um, you know, there were, you know, 10,000 problems that had to be solved to solve this, you know, sort of one big problem. Uh, you know, being the seizure detector, you know, the spike detector is an input to the seizure detector and all of these things. And, um, you know, that was sort of, you know, one of the things that I really didn't understand getting into this was that, um, you know, I, you know, initially tried to develop these algorithms sort of, you know, just spike detector or whatever, or, uh, you know, seizure detector or uh, a state change detector. And as it turns out, you know, it was sort of pointless until we had very, very good artifact detectors, um, you know, because these, these artifacts are often, you know, much larger than the signal, um, you know, 10 to 100 times larger. And, um, you know, there was no point, you know, in having, you know, clustering algorithms or segmentation on things where there were artifacts because that's that's where you would do it. So, you know, the... So sort of where we're at, where we're going is, you know, we've got this, you know, seizure detector that works at human level now you know, kids and adults. And, um, you know, one of the things we're trying very hard to do right now is sort of piggyback on this work that's being done by the self-driving car technologies. Yeah. I mean, to a sense, I mean, I am like a kid in a, in a, in a candy shop, you know, 
hundreds of millions of dollars of research and brain spent, you know, to develop these these tools and now they're open source and we can grab them and use them. And so over the last year, basically I, you know, the, the algorithm development has always been sort of a black art and it's me, you know, sitting down thinking about, you know, what it is that has to happen. And I do an experiment and it works or it fails. And then I do another part and, um, you know, sort of like lovingly handcrafted algorithms. But um, so over the last year, I basically developed a pipeline that basically says, okay, you know, these are the EEG records, here are the seizures marked, and now go off and build this whole algorithm, you know, which is, you know, many, many levels of, um, you know, conceptual frameworks and, you know, thousands of neural networks are getting sort of built. And then, but this pipeline now actually does all of that automatically. So we train the neural network, it spits out the source code, goes and recompiles the code, runs it again, and does the next level and goes on. And so, the thing that we're doing right now is a neonatal seizure detector. And um, lo and behold, you know, we took the pipeline, gave it a new set of data. And I mean, it's uh, uh, crazy, but I mean, first time out, it, it had, um, you know, wildly better results than, um, you know, we than, you know, an early prototype detector that we had, um, you know, that we've been using in testing. And so, um, you know, our goal is to really sort of come up to speed and use all of these new tools. And um, I feel like we're at the point where we're going to now be able to leverage them and, you know, now start spitting out algorithms, you know, every six months, you know. And so, for example, we'll, you know, very soon have a sleep scoring, um, you know, just from the EEG, you know, not intended to compete with, uh, you know, sort of traditional sleep, sleep scoring methods that have a lot of other inputs. But this is just, you know, a lot of doctors are interested in, um, you know, the effect of, uh, you know, seizure disorders on sleep or, you know, what's what's this ICU patient doing? Are they actually getting any, you know, REM or anything like that? Um, so, um, so, you know, the the hope is to be able to ramp this up and, um, you know, very quickly now start, um, you know, we feel like we have, you know, this, you know, sort of wildly robust set of tools now and to really start, you know, turning out code faster now. Yeah, that's amazing. I, th I think you're, you're right on where the, uh, where the field needs to go. I mean, if you, if you go back to, uh, you know, the hemodynamic monitors and the fact that the heart's a lot simpler, I mean, the Philips and GE monitors, Detecting arrhythmias is something that's just done totally automatic, and you know the nurse puts on the electrodes, and, and you, it's a good analogy that you mentioned that that's where we need to be with this. The brain right. is just a little little more complex, and I remember the '90s were were called the decade of the brain, and they they came and went, and people said, "Well, <laughs> well, well, well what happened?" <laughs> right? Yes, <laughs> pretty right. much nothing happened. <laughs> where did that brain go anyway? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, but I think I think right now, and you're you're right. There's so much uh, open source software, and we're knowing a lot more about the brain. So, um, so wish you a lot of luck with that. I think if anyone can crack this nut, it's uh, it's you guys. And uh, I really, um, you know, I think everybody appreciates all the work you're doing uh, in this field to move it forward. So, yeah. So, well, thank you so much. Yeah. Dude. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for the interview. And I just have one more question for you to make me totally jealous is uh, when was the last time you went surfing and which of those amazing beaches you're next to did you go to? <laughs> so. uh, um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm here in Del Mar. And so I just, um, you know, basically there's a, there's a, there's a break directly out from me, um, yeah. you know, which is, 
which is not too aggro. I know the guys. And um, I have to tell you, though, I, you know, I spent those seven years in New Jersey and I never want to be cold again. And it's a problem <laughs> for me when the water, I mean, the water here gets cold, but they're making these um, heated wetsuits now with um, lithium iron batteries. Oh and God. I am like a clam at high tide. And <laughs> I'm just sitting there and. <laughs> It's very, very nice. Yeah, so next time you're out here, we'll go surfing. Hey, let's do it. Yeah, that's good. And the only the only good thing about growing up in South Florida is you're uh, you know you're you're swimming and surfing at Christmas with no uh, wetsuit. So it's, yes, <laughs> that's the only <laughs> advantage. <laughs> well, great. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll uh, thanks for the invitation, and I'll take you up on that. And uh, great. Again, thanks a lot for the interview. Uh, fascinating, and good luck with uh, all the future work that Persist is doing. Uh, well, thanks so much. So thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you enjoy these interviews, please take a moment to rate and review this show on your podcast app of choice. Subscribe to Dick Moberg's Neural Network to receive notifications when future installments are available. And of course, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Moberg Research, Inc. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us again soon.